terrible. <laughs> Just another way in which men are disappointing. Oh, God. It's like that never meet your heroes, yeah, because they're only going to disappoint you. Yeah. Uh, poor young Neve. Yet to learn. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Literary Cannonball. Inspired by the work of the Stella Count that reveals the ongoing gender imbalance in the conversations we have about books, Literary Cannonball is striving to correct some of that imbalance by talking about books written by women from around the world. I'm Kirby Fenwick and I'm joined by... Hi, I'm Neve Marnie, student by day, writer, editor by night and reader by nature. Woo! And... I'm Thee Murphy and I'm excited to talk about books written by women from around the world. <laughs> <laughs> How are we all feeling today? Tired. <laughs> Tired. I feel like we're all at a low ebb, but this conversation is going to like tidle us up and we'll be wonderful and we'll all get over our colds. Yeah. And spring Yay. is here and the sun is out and it's nice. Which just makes it all the more kind of like, whoa, I feel like such an oh, eeyore. Oh, you've got a cold. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Sunshine, happiness, all of that. All of that. <laughs> all right, let's get into book chats then. So to our book, or should I say essay, for episode 18, a finalist in the 2015 <laughs> Melbourne Prize for Writing, Maria Tamarkin's essay, No Skin, is an exploration of trauma scapes and our complex relationship with places of trauma. From the Holocaust to Princess Diana to Jilma, Tamarkin explores this idea that she cannot seem to shake, wondering about portals and meeting meaning and undeniable power. A writer and cultural historian and the author of four books, the most recent being the 2018 Axiomatic, I'm never sure if I'm saying that correctly, from Brow Books, Tamarkin was born in the Ukraine and immigrated to Australia in 1989. She's been shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award, the Age Book of the Year and the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. She is a superstar. Fee, you brought this essay to the podcast. Can you tell us why? Um, I am a fan of Maria Tamarkin and I saw recently that she did an interview with Sarah Stinelli's, um, the author of Draw Your Weapons and it was a conversation at the Wheeler Centre which you can get online and we'll link to in the show notes and this essay was referenced in that conversation as they were talking about trauma and Sarah said how much of a fan she is of this essay and how much it kind of resonated with her and her work into what it is to be a pacifist as well as an observer and historian of history and trauma, um, the responsibility of the citizen versus the responsibility of society and that kind of conversation that we have with the past and how it's the building blocks of the future. So I was really quite interested in kind of diving into the essay myself and seeing what was there and I concur with Sarah it is pretty incredible absolutely incredible mm-hmm. but what do you guys think I really loved it um I love essays I'm a big reader of essays um you know people like Rebecca Solnit and Leslie Jameson are some of my favorite writers mm-hmm. And this was right up my street. Um, It's kind of one of those essays that's got um, 
all these different strands, you know, and she's mm. like pulling them together and braiding them together. And I love those, those essays that feel like you're, you're going on journey feels like so naff to say, but you're going on, you're, you're having this experience with the writer. Like you kind of feel like you're alongside them as they're kind of writing mm. through all these different ideas and kind of pulling it all together. And I love that. And I really love the voice of this. I did mention to Fee before we started recording that as I was reading it, I, I had like Maria's voice in my head. Like I've seen her speak and listened to a couple of podcasts. So I, um, I know her voice and I, it felt like she was reading it to me, <laughs> which is a pretty lovely experience, I should say. But yeah, this is, um, this is really, really great and just a really wonderful example of the kind of essays that I thoroughly enjoy mm. reading again and again and again and digesting them it's like you know you come back and you find something else in the second read and the third mm. read and yeah I loved it I think um just to kind of pick up on your hesitance to use the word journey I would be quite hesitant to use that word for this essay as well not because it's like an overused cliche of a description but I felt like this essay has a circular quality to it of kind of not um, ruminating, but it's kind of uh, revisiting and reviewing and relooking and re-experiencing and finding a new and unearthing that it doesn't feel linear. No, at yeah, all. yeah. yeah. It's start to end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it kind of um, double backs on itself and um, the idea of Maria's voice, um, you hearing it as you read it, I agree. And that's kind of, that she's doing commentary on the writing of the mm. essay during the essay. So it's this very kind of um, not sort of naffy and meta, but it's kind of a tangle of what it is and what it means to memorialise something and participate in grief. And I feel like it's so complex and knotty that it's an excellent representation of the confusion of grief. Mm. but it's very easy to read oh yeah so easy oh yeah what did you think Neve? um okay what was i gonna say with your point v like it's a, a lovely example of form following function because i mean there's that circular quality and so within the structure of the essay you feel that like you f you s sort of have that feeling of compulsion of circling back that is actually discussed in the essay so it's mm. a lovely way of sort of like the words actually helping you doing the work of proving the point which i kind of think it even goes beyond the what's become known as the braided essay idea of having hmm. two or three distinct strands and then letting them overlap i feel like um because the paragraphing in this is quite long um and the kind of the continuation structure itself it to me, it doesn't feel like an overall braid, if you like, but it's almost the ideas. It's more like a tapestry of little knots next to one another. And then when you look back, you realise it's a big knot. And mm. then you go back in and then you realise that it's so complex and these tiny, tiny strands interwoven that kind of only makes sense when you follow the tension down and down and down, three knots on. I don't even know if that metaphor makes sense, but it's no, it does. More it's than not just like a clean yeah. plait. No, no, it's not. It's it's kind of messy in a way, mm. um, and I think it's messy because 
um, what she's writing about is messy. Like trauma mm. is messy and grief is messy. Like these are these ideas are not um, they're not clean. They're not easy. They're not um, simple. And I think that's reflected in the sort of construction of the essay and, and the way it's put together. And I think in the way that I feel like, you know, Maria Tamarkin doesn't have an easy answer for this. Mm. There's, there's not an easy response because there can't be an easy response because there is such a complexity to the idea of um, the trauma scapes, which is such a brilliant word, I think, mm. to describe this idea of sites of, of trauma and um, particularly, you know, things like well, Jill Ma, she makes it, she mm. brings her into it, but even Princess Diana, you know, yeah. and, and that kind of, um, and the Lint um, Cafe, you know, and all those, that huge mass of flowers. And yeah, I, it's, there is that kind of, and I love the idea of a tapestry that, I mean, I think that, that analogy is brilliant. Um, and you might have just invented a new style or way of describing these essays. <laughs> it's a good work. I think that's brilliant because that's kind of what it feels like. And it's like, yeah, these little bits and pieces that are all sort of coming together and, and making this knot, as you say. But it's, yeah, it's it's got that messy quality, but that's okay. I, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, even to, like Tamarkin even says, like to try and pin it down to one reason or one thing would to be so restrictive mm. and sort of almost like negate the power, the sort of unknowable and unspeakable power of these sort of places. Mm. And I think that's really true. Sometimes like we have this need to categorize things and sometimes that serves us really well, but sometimes it doesn't. And I feel like this is sort of an essay about exploring it because you feel compelled to, but not necessarily like, explaining because you don't really need to i really liked um that strand in the essay where she talks about when she came to the word traumascapes because that's something that she cobbled together and has continually used and i feel like is very representative of the themes and questions that she's asking it's like the perfect word mm. and how she thought she'd wrap that up and had Mm. spent enough time thinking about it and wrote a book about it and was like I'm not going to be a one idea woman I'm going to explore something else write about all these <laughs> other things and then finally gave herself permission many years later to come back to it mm. and this self-imposed coronation period that she had had broken and she comes back to exploring trauma escapes because she's compelled to I love that she is a scholar mm. and she has written a lot of um, scholarship and ac academic texts. I love that she makes things so accessible, mm. but at the same time doesn't forget that there is a complex language that has evolved to try and sense make trauma mm. in kind yeah. of a scholarship way and how her sentences just reflect that in so many ways of that kind of casual is the wrong way but well thought out and absorbed sort of thinking it's like that idea mm. of um easy writing is hard work but i think yeah. it's even I easy reading is hard um, i agree with that but i think she also takes a the next level where this has been clearly digested so deeply in her that it comes mm. out in this 
it's like a vernacular of it's plain English because she's plainly thought about it so deeply. Mm. Yeah. And for example, because um, the essay goes into the, should we have memorials? Should we keep places where traumatic events have happened? Should we keep them and hold them as um, a testament to what has happened? And then in one sentence she goes, this holds no matter how new-seeming or complex of forms they take, anti-memorials, counter-memorials, temporary memorials, like the memorials that appear without fail following an untimely, unassimilable death of 100, 1001. In that one very long sentence, she covers so many fields of kind of newfangled words of anti-memorials, counter-memorials, temporary memorials, there's so much thinking behind that sentence, so much mm. deep reading and analysis of different fields of thought that she doesn't do away with, but she kind of lets the reader into knowing some of it as much as is required. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, she owns that knowledge and you can tell. Like, you can't write like this in a sense of, like, bringing current events, bringing sort of academia bringing herself and sort of melding it unless you knew it unless you really knew it and had thought about it and ruminated with it for so that long oh that is so true mm. yeah and yeah i in a way i'm thinking about how when i was reading it i'm hearing her voice in my mind and it almost feels like you know she's she's telling you this stuff because she knows it like you said neve she's done so much work around this subject and these ideas and done so much thinking about it and writing about mm -hmm. it and and even every other sort of thinking and writing that she's done that's separate from this from this specific topic like comes into it and informs it and but even just like I mean just her language is so just wonderful like some of like the you know metaphors and things she uses like drinking like a beluga like a beluga whale mm. like i'm not even really sure what that means like how does a beluga whale drink but i love i love i mean is that the ones in that huge just open their mouth and just like swim through the water i don't know but i just love that <laughs> phrase i underlined it i'm just like this is like so um specific but it's such an interesting like image and there's mm. there's a couple of them and well more than a couple and i just really love that about her writing is that um yeah these are like really big ideas and really complex ideas and sometimes really difficult ideas but then there's like this simple sort of phrase and I just read that and I like it just kind of makes me smile like because it's such a beautiful like four words like mm. it's and there's multiple ones of that in there that just makes her writing feel um welcoming I mm. found that with definitely the way she describes things a warming up of what could what we tend to distance ourselves from mm. in sort of the guise of respectfulness and kind mm. of um protecting ourselves from becoming re-traumatized was when she was describing um the death of the graffiti artist um because he was train riding mm. is that the phrase train riding yeah, I think where so. you get on top of the train and 
Train surfing? Train, train surfing. surfing. That's, yeah, that's much, that makes more sense. <laughs> and how she's describing how the train station, um, Balaclava train station, is become like essentially a construction site. And that's mm. a train station that she goes to. Mm. The way she describes like the details of like, what an annoyance that train station is of like having to get off the platform one and oh, walk it's all the way around. Mm. Yeah. I love that kind of placekeeping of that and not pretending that it isn't an annoying train station, even though this horrific death happens there. Yeah. She still includes this really human component of like, I'm on this line every day and that train station is just fucking annoying and it's taking so long to like, and these things always take so long. It's yeah. like a, mm. a really kind of chatty, realistic way of talking about life. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that was one of the things in terms of like accessibility and feeling welcome. Maybe just because I live in Melbourne and I have my entire life. I really loved this essay in that like I knew, like I intimately knew several of the places what she was talking about. And that gave me a, I felt very well, in, like that gave me a real in, like it was, and also I wasn't able to separate myself from, like, especially when you read like American texts and there's like, this happened in this state and you're like, that feels very separate from you. Whereas mm. this, like, you know, um, this was, yeah, I, with one of them, what she talks about, when she talks about um, St. James Church. Like, I went to the high school across from that church. I was going to that high school when it was burnt down. Like, mm. I remember going to school and seeing, like, the charred exterior of it. And it's still, um, like, it's still pretty much like that now. It hasn't been redone. It's just sort really? of... Really? Yeah, she's just sitting there. I went... I um, drove past it a couple of weeks ago, and it's still... Um, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like when you're, you know, you, I, I sort of have that mm. feeling even when you're reading like fiction or like anything, you know, if someone mentions something that, um, a place or, you know, a suburb or something that you're like familiar with, or you, mm. you live there or you're, you're just very familiar with that space. It's, you know, it's like when we were reading, um, Claire writes The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka and mm. she mentions Bacchus Marsh and it's like, oh, I know Bacchus Marsh. I went to school in Bacchus Marsh. It's yeah. like that's, it sort of opens up like another kind of connection to the writing, yeah. which, which you only have because you have experienced that space too. No, which I find really interesting is that she still does that with places where we're meant to be familiar with because they're the stories that the media have covered for weeks on end mm. such as the opening location is that house in the suburbs where the mother um a, a woman stabbed eight children mm. and like um if you were living in australia at that time you would be deeply familiar with that house what it looks like the surrounding houses, the street, because it was in the news and questioned and examined and forensically looked at. Mm. And I feel that um, even how she describes it is very unjournalistic in how she explores this place that isn't part of her neighbourhood. She doesn't live there. She's from Melbourne or lives in Melbourne, whereas mm. that house is in Queensland. But it's still that kind of... It's her language and her approach where she describes the house. Um, whenever anyone says, though, the memorial will not 
replace the house. It won't do away with the presence, anchoring or wallpapery of the number 34 in people's memories of their own lives, or mute the subsonic hum of the house's absence, or put to rest reminiscences of the funeral procession, all eight of them going past the house one last time, or make invisible new plants growing in the park's soil, fertilised by 100 years' worth of tears fallen in a few days. And I think even just the things like wallpapery and subsonic hum and mm. these humanising of places that have been picked apart by media. And then when she talks about the Holocaust, places that have been um, represented in history as being a certain a history to it and mm. a history that needs to be preserved but yep. at the same time it takes away elements of joy even which is a really interesting strand of the essay where mm. she knows someone who's trying to kind of recapture that sense of being a survivor because her family members survived the holocaust and revisiting those places and dancing yeah i found yeah. that really fascinating yeah. Mm. And the idea of place is something that um, I think about a lot. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but um, I do. And there's um, a Rebecca Solnit essay in um, That's Twice I've Mentioned her this episode. I should keep a count. I think I mentioned her every episode. Anyway, I do actually. <laughs> <laughs> She's great. There's a, a book of hers called A Field Guide to Getting Lost, which is one of my favourite um, mm. essay collections. But there's an essay in there that talks about and there's a there's a piece in the essay that talks about place and the kind of um it's a paragraph that i i absolutely adore and the idea is that um it's the places that remain you know long after everything is gone it's the place that remains and that's kind of like um i kind of get that feeling when you know when maria is talking about these trauma scapes and the idea of um you know, we think that um, we think that we shape these places. You know, we shape these memorials or these trauma scapes, but we often don't think about how they shape us. Mm. And I found that a really interesting um, kind of idea in this essay about how much these places shape us. And when you talk about somewhere like Auschwitz, and how much that has shaped. Um, sort of the the cultural narrative of, of World War Two, but even yeah. even much broader than that. I mean, people know that place and know what happened in that place, and you know how much has that place shaped us as people? And even when you think about, um, you know, that house in Cairns, how, or that church that you saw after it had burned down Mm. you know and maybe it's not something that you're conscious of and maybe it didn't shape you but how much did those places shape the people around them or the people that experienced that or saw that I think that's a really interesting idea yeah well I mean for me well the first thought I had was a little petty because technically this was the second time I'd gone to a school and see a church burnt down it happened to me um, in primary school. My um, parish church was burnt down. Um, so I was like, oh, fuck again. <laughs> um, just so, that's an incredibly petty thought, but that was just what ran through my mind. The second 
thought was sort of like, well, I'm not sure how I feel about a church, a place of worship being burnt down. But then on the heels of that, immediately I'm like, I've heard some real shit about what went down in that church. She mentions that. Yeah, and you know what? Let that fucker burn. Yeah. Like, that's how I, like, I know a lot of, there, I googled it because I was curious about whether it was, there there were plans about um, rebuilding it. And there are like there's a website and of people who want to um, like restore it, and I'm sort of like I vehemently disagree with that stance. You know, like look, aesthetically, it was a very beautiful church, but frankly, w- right now, if you w- if you drove past it, you see the character of that church, like. The facade was beautiful, but what went underneath the actual? You the, see the true character of the church in the burnt building, is that? Yeah, what you're and you see the the trauma. The mm-hmm. trauma is invisible, and I feel like you know if that helped or like gave even a moment's peace for the people, some of the survivors anywhere, then good, like. Mm. I don't know. I just, yeah, it's a very weird space to be in when you're like raised Catholic and not like gradually learning about all of that and having to negotiate it. Um, yeah, because as much as like people that I know, at least, are ve- very much like the Catholic Church needs an overhaul, we knew it like do reparations with abuse survivors we need like we really need to address this in a way that's respectful in a way that really um uh like you know helps survivors and you know try you know i don't know exactly how to phrase that but like i also know people have that sort of like apologist views points mm-hmm. as well and sort of like well you know what, survivors been blocked in so many avenues, then why are you surprised that they are unleashing the trauma in that way? On, on a physical space. Yeah, because, like, I, that whole thing of, like, oh, well, it's, like, it's innocent. And I'm like, well, is it, though? But also that, that that's a kind of an interesting idea in and of itself. Um, are, like, can spaces be... Like, I mean, innocent is a is an interesting word, but can spaces be... A space can never be free of what happens in that space. Does that make sense? Mm. And that's it carries that it. Maria talks about as well is um, right at the end of the essay, um, she just says, if I was pressed to put into words, the most important thing I've learned about trauma escapes is not talking about how they are sacred places for mourning and honouring the dead or remembering those who should not be forgotten. So not freezing it, Mm. but rather um, we must remember that these places are alive, alive and powerful. And um, I find it really interesting that towards the end of that um, paragraph, and she's so excellent at doing this, as an essay writer is posing questions upon questions upon questions. It's a really interesting mm. stylistic thing to read. Yeah. Of yeah. Um, would my family dance on the site of its own trauma? 
What do we owe the dead and to the living? What stops us forgetting? Does grief ever end? Does trauma? And these sort of kind of piling up of questions and then not worrying that there are clear-cut answers is something that I found quite comforting. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because it almost feels like it shouldn't be comforting. Mm. But I think, you know, it's coming back to that idea of how how messy and um, difficult grief and trauma are and that there just so often isn't an answer Mm. and you just have to kind of accept that or or at least come to terms with it and so that's why it's kind of I mean I love those kind of essays anyway that don't have um don't have that sort of like clear cut you get to the end all the questions are answered everything's fine good to go like I'm I'm not really on board with that sort of writing because I think that's a bit too easy it's it's interesting though that that continues to be in vogue and it's yeah. continually taught as being the correct essay of like you start with the question and you come to some form of resolution. But I, I, I just don't think you need a resolution. Mm. Yeah. And that's kind of a resolution in, in and of its own that there isn't one because there isn't one for these spaces because we don't, we're still grappling with how we, how we deal with them. And what it means, even when you talk about places from the Holocaust, we're still, I feel like we're still as a, as a worldwide community grappling with how we deal with those spaces. And even when you think about, you know, the church burning down Neve or, um, you know, the, the bridal shop where Jill Ma was last seen on CCTV, you know, these kind of we're still grappling with what we do with these spaces and how we how we remember them and and what they mean and so there is no resolution for that mm. i love her final um two lines of um she lists a place uh, a few places of um uh trauma of uh, 34 murray street um Maruma, cairns christmas island Nauru. don't get me started each street almost, each suburb, town, highway, river, definitely. And I, I, it's such a perfectly written essay. It's just remarkable how much she covers and how um, much warmth there is in this because on their own, each trauma in this is difficult. Mm-hmm. Having strings of traumas place together with only full stops and commas between them could be devastating and overwhelming yet she still manages to kind of find a sort of um community amongst it yeah hope which i'm really confused with because i'm like why do i feel hopeful after reading this maybe it's the questions yeah it's the questions without the answers that kind of but then i don't know i don't know i anything that i read of her is i'm baffled why I always walk away with a sense of deep comfort when it should because when you yeah. they're tough things that she's generally writing about I mean then she's not writing about you know lollipops and rainbows <laughs> yeah but I feel like a lot of the time grief is shamed like in terms not always but like 
emotional outpourings is sort of like in a journalistic sense they can be a little bit like fetishized and a little bit objectified or there's also that idea of like there's a way to grieve yeah and it's very restrictive whereas this essay very much is of the opinion that everyone had like those feeling that and feeling being able to express that is a very valid like way to feel it's so it is kind of yeah. validating yeah when she talks about you know the dancing and that artist who takes like goes back with her father who was a survivor of the holocaust you know and they and they dance at this concentration camp and that that mm. kind of feels like there's not one way to grieve and there's not one way to experience these places of trauma and it's all valid and it's all okay and that maybe that's I don't know she just feels like an incredibly you know I've only listened to podcasts and seen her speak but she feels like an incredibly warm person that just feels like who she is and I agree completely Fee that comes through in the writing and you feel you feel a sense of comfort like I trust her Mm. as a like a writer and a human being (laughs) which feels so strange but yeah it's yeah yeah, well, I mean, she definitely commands a lot of authority because mm. we we know, as we discussed, we know she knows her stuff. Like, mm. um, also when she's sort of like, Diana, we have to go. I was, I was like, oh, yes, because I was thinking about that and that like real up because um, recently there's all been a lot of royal coverage because of the weddings and like rehashing the Diana story yet mm. again, which I don't know, I, f- I have very mixed feelings about. Um, and I've heard that people sort of been like, oh, it's kind of a bit fake or like a little bit over the top, but I'm sort of like, was it? Like, I feel like so much of it was like public figures in a, in a way can feel very personal to you. Well, I mean, you, you think know? about what, I mean, we've lost some pretty significant people, like, you know, entertainers or, or, you know, public figures of recent times. And that can be like really devastating for people because you yeah, it might be one-sided, but you build a relationship with these people, you know, whether Mm. it's someone like Prince, you know, they build a relationship with their music. And so you have that and you might not know that person personally, but your experience of them is personal. Mm. And so when they, when something happens to them or they do pass away, that feels personal to you. I, I mean, I feel like Diana's the same thing because she was such a huge figure in the UK and people had such love for her. They had... A, per- a personal experience of her and so her death felt really personal and I just think that I mean let people live like that's it's okay mm. yeah though as it, I think or she also counterpoints that as well interestingly in that whole narrative of like well not necessarily count but at least sort of floats the idea of like that whole it could have been me with like Jill Ma, and more recently, I thought that was a really interesting yeah, part of the Eurydice Dixon. Like, cause on, on one level, like it is very scary to know that like that happens in a geographically near area to maybe where where you're living. But um, yeah, I know. It, I also at the same time you can't really claim those people because you don't really know them. You don't. You can't grieve them personally. Well, it's really I interesting can't. what you mean by claiming in geographical space because I find it quite difficult to grieve when family members overseas pass away because mm. you don't have the um, 
the cues and the structures of the geography to help guide mm. grief. And yeah. it's a very stilted, disruptive process that I definitely don't have the skills at um, and often led, leads to deep denial of death of those family members. Mm. So I think there is something um, quite beautiful and profound of ritual and returning to and speaking and yeah 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 well I mean also I think it's a real affirmation of ritual what what this essay and it's sort of it very much expresses that humans need to we we I think we a lot of us feel very comforted by rituals and like being able to like at least do something in our grief or like whether that's like personally laying down flowers or actually like you traveling like you know wearing the black dress and then going to the funeral or what like I feel like that those sort of cues can be really helpful and when you don't have them you feel very trapped in your own grief Mm. I should say as um as a writer I feel like I learned a lot from this essay. Oh, yeah, technique-wise. Yeah, mm. and just like, you know, s- structure. Don't think I've mentioned that one in a while. Um, <laughs> Take a shot. Yeah, as, as a writer, I think this is like a really um, great essay to read because um, it is done so well. It is put together so well with a real light touch, like nothing Mm. feels laboured or heavy, you know, it just feels like, and it flows naturally. And even when she's sort of like, you know, moving quite distinctly between um, ideas, it doesn't feel jarring. Like it's so instructive as a writer, this essay. Which is really interesting because she she puts so many uh, philosophers and thinkers and journalists and people with distinct ideas side by side. Mm. And the way she just introduces them without show and flair, but just like guides the reader along with like little tags and um, signposting Mm. that, gosh, it's like butter. It is so smooth. (laughs) (laughs) And in one paragraph, she could introduce for separate thinkers on a subject and it's just like yeah I'm on board I know what you're talking about and it's like Mm. if it was anyone else I'd be like what is going on here but it's very um accessible is the word I would give this essay and it's a joy and such an aesthetic it is really beautiful Mm. I think we're giving two thumbs up all around yeah yeah Thoroughly recommend people read this. Yeah, highly, will, highly recommend. The yeah. link will be in the show notes, and we will put it out on our on our socials. You can download the PDF and um, um, get a bunch of other essays with it too. I think there's five in there, mm. so you you know five for the price of one, and the price is zero dollars because it's free. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm. Yeah, I mean, you can see I've tabbed it. I've like you know written all over it. Um, it actually my. Coffee actually looks a bit worse for wear. Um, But, (laughs) yeah, it definitely feels like one that I'll come back to and read. As a writer, I will read Mm. to sort of inform my own practice, but also just as a human being that is, you know, has a distinct interest in this idea of place um, and how we grieve and deal with trauma, I'm going to come back to it again and again for sure. Yeah. I also have a feeling this might be, like, 
a grief read, which sounds like very weird to say, but there are a couple of books that I have um, put aside and I've read when I've lost someone close to me mm. that I find really either very comforting or very like affirming. And I mm. feel like this might be another one that goes into that goes pile. into that pile for sure. Mm. I highly recommend C.S. Lewis's book yep. on grief. That's that is stunning. Yeah. Stunning, stunning, oh, stunning. Absolutely yeah. gorgeous. I mean. For people who aren't religious, there is that element to it, but... I'm not religious and I still enjoy that book. Yeah, but I feel like C.S. Lewis is able to speak to some... He has that... It's a very weird read in terms of, like, it's at once intensely personal, but also... A practical guide? Yeah, but also <laughs> also, weird, also very universal. Yeah. And, like, and you can tell that's when someone's... So well, like they're writing so well crafted when it's able to be that at the same time. Mm. Two thumbs up all round for Maria Tamarkin. Yeah. Just like generally in life, but also this essay. Big fan. Okay, so two recommendations for this month. What have we been reading and watching and listening to that we want to give the two thumbs up to? <laughs> I, wish this like, I wish we had video going or something. That would have some sort of like interpretive dance of the recommendations going on. It's but brilliant. there's such a rhythm. It, it mm-hmm. is, isn't it? <laughs> um, All right, who wants to go first? I can do a quick wrap. <laughs> this time it will be quick. Quick. Because sure. we've already mentioned one, and that is Marie Tamarkin's Axiomatic, which mm. was published in 2018 by Brow Books. Books. Um, and it's pretty similar, um, my feelings. So if you listen to the first part of the show, you will know that I'm completely obsessed with her as a writer, her style, her form, her essays this is a collection of essays and the title comes from um, axioms so each essay is constructed on the basis of an axiom of um, you can't cross the same river twice um, so they're kind of starting points of time ideas. heals all wounds is that one as well yeah that's yeah. another one it's a really great idea it's such a beautiful idea and it's mm. one that she talks about in the collection of how she came to crafting the essay. So it's got this nice kind of commentary to it where she's kind of grappling with these concepts of um, history and trauma and remembrance and remembering. And um, it's taken, it took her nine years or so to write the collection. And that becomes part of the story of the collection as she's moving through time and finding out more information, meeting more people the book is becoming an object which it's such a joy to read um it does deal with a lot of grief and trauma and i had just lost a family member when i started reading the book and i was in an airport traveling back to sydney to see family to kind of mourn this um, person passing away and i picked this book up because it was on the top of my pile without really knowing much about it and it's a book deeply about grief and it was extremely comforting it was the perfect read to be stuck in melbourne airport tullamarine with delay after delay after delay feeling quite isolated but having that comforting voice exploring and explaining but without 
conclusions, the process of grief and what it means to be human and alive and experiencing um, complex experiences. So I would thoroughly recommend that book to anyone at any time. Mm. Um, anyone that I've spoken to that has read it um, has mentioned and echoed the same sort of feeling of deep comfort despite the heaviness of the subjects. It is quite extraordinary and I just galloped through it. It's it's very high on my list. I really, 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 really want to read that book. <laughs> Do it. Get on board. Um, and a great cover as well. It's kind of oh, simple. It's spectacular. Really it's very striking. Brad Books do really wonderful covers. If you have a look at like, the books that they've published, mm. they sit nicely together. Yeah. They, yeah. They, and they, they, they are very aesthetically pleasing. Mm. And that's something in the acknowledgement section because I always read the acknowledgements of books. Um, that the author does and she like kind of hollers out how great the cover is and she loves <laughs> the so typesetting cool. as well and she yep. personally thanked the typesetter and it was oh wow it was a really nice mm. kind of, it's funny how that sort of stuff really informs your experience of a book isn't it you don't yeah. kind of maybe you don't even really consciously think about it but i think it has a real impact mm. Mm. i agree even how um each axiom starts on a new page and the page is given the axiom. So the title of the essay is um, presented in this kind of long sort of downward spiral, almost as if it's like a sonnet or mm. um, yeah, okay. it's very nice. poetic in its yeah. presentation. It's um, I liked it. Um, I also gobbled up and read through quite quickly. Um, the world was whole by Fiona Wright. Um, Quite interesting. I use the word gobble. It's a book all about eating and purging and her experience with chronic illness, which is anorexia. And um, it's a collection of essays. And the kind of counterpoint of it is what is home and what does it feel like to be home in your own body, your suburb, your community, your space, the world. Um, the essays are quite fragmentary, um, quite a different sort of approach to her debut collection of essays, Small Acts of Disappearance. It's kind of like an echoing back and calling to, but a growing forward and looking outwards sort of thing. Mm. So I would recommend that you start with Small Acts of Disappearance because you kind of, um, it lays the foundation of what her condition is, um, her understanding of her condition, because it's quite a complex story where she's unwell for a long period of time without knowing the specifics of her condition, um, which is quite fascinating in itself. And this collection is kind of marking 15 years since she's had a condition of um, this ongoing kind of... Um, experience of her body and feeling unhomed in her body and it's this she just it's really beautiful way of tying in research and ideas from other people but making it her own through poetic language and prose um and she also has these little beautiful fragments of poets throughout so you would get like a a few paragraphs of like experience or observation and then a line of poetry and then onwards and a line of poetry and onwards and it's kind of a building and building on ideas and it's really lovely mirroring because I know there's a few essays from the collection out in the world on different sites and things like that but it's really nice to read it as 
in the order that she intended it to be because she does one essay on the concept of uh, winter, another on the concept of spring, and there are kind of quite meta themes that she kind of really unpacks of um, kind of the impact of the environment on the individual and the individual on the environment. And she does one on nectarines, like a big oh. old piece on stone fruit, which sounds quite like mundane. And it kind of ties into how much she has restricted herself that she's this stunning line where she can't believe that she lives in the world where nectarines exist and she oh, hasn't been that. eating mm. them. And it's kind of quiet. Mm. There are moments of exquisite beauty and sorrow. Yeah. It's a lot of feelings in this, yeah. but it's not at any point sentimental. Or um, it's incredibly generous. Um, she did say she was a bit worried that it would read like a diary. Um, but I think it's anything but. I think it's the most generous sort of piece of collection because it's all very felt um, so I highly recommend. Very much looking forward to that. And um, it's just been released by Giramondo. And the other um, book, again, it's non-fiction because <laughs> I rarely read fiction and I'm trying to get better at it. Like I used to only read fiction and it was like I was obsessed with so fiction. So now you're just going through a period of like deep non-fiction. Yeah. Well, and then you'll get to a period where it's like both. I had one Maybe. beautiful year mm. of doing one for one and I felt very whole. Mm. Whereas I now like... I just have this constant guilt that I'm not reading fiction enough. Eh. I feel like if I'm reading a non-fiction book, I need a fiction book to kind of go with it because I, I, I just... I Palette need cleansing? Yeah, I need that. I need that, especially if it's like a heavy non-fiction book. I need to be able to have something else that's like not non-fiction like I need some fiction or poetry or something to kind of like break that up I think I use poetry yeah. as my sort of Color I go back up. to and yeah because if I've got a heavy non-fiction I'll go for a slightly less heavy non-fiction and maybe a fruitless <laughs> non-fiction but it's like, whereas it used to be a bit more um exploratory with my reading um so this book is called An Unquiet Mind by Kay Renfield Redfield and it was published in 1996 and it did quite well at that time and it was kind of the first memoir about a physician so she's a doctor with um, an illness and she's got bipolar so it's a very because there's still a lot of stigma and it's still extremely difficult to become a medical professional if you've got some form of disability there are a lot of structural barriers in place and um, denial of entry into that world as a clinician um, and that's very intentional and this was kind of very groundbreaking when it was released um, she spent a long time keeping her bipolar disorder secret so that she could continue working but she's actually got on to become um, a Kind of world-renowned expert in um, manic depressive conditions mm. and this is a memoir explaining how she got through university and work and things like that with her condition and how it's informed her research and her approach to patients so it's it's a difficult read because it's very painful and she's um, faced a lot of obstacles and the way she writes is unflinching and honest and 
it's it's an incredible read um but also knowing that it's like that was published in 1996 and where we are today it's a bit sad because mm. it would be remarkable if that triggered a conversation of change but we're still in this kind of place of status and status which is kind of um yeah it's there's a, still a long way to go but kind of reading Fiona Wright's work I went to a, I saw a talk with her the other night where she was talking to Sam Typhoid Moore and he recently wrote a memoir about um having bipolar it's really great to see that there are more books of lived experience mm. narratives to kind of bolster mm. the complexity of identity. Yeah. Um, but there's still a long way to go. <laughs> yeah. So there are my recommendations for the month. That yeah. is a fantastic stack. Yes. <clears throat> Time to Rex this month. Um, I think I did this last month as well, a book and a podcast. Um, that kind of tells you everything you need to know. Um, <laughs> So the book, first of all, is actually a book I uh, had to read for uni. I'm doing a unit on American literature. Um, so it's Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silco. So it was originally published in 1977. And it's she's a Native, Native American writer. Mm-hmm. And so it's a story of um, a young um, Native American man. He It's sort of set post-World War II. So he um, has gone to World War II had some really traumatic experiences and has come back to America. So, and it's it, for me, um, and I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the themes and, and the language in this story because I have to write an essay about it, mm. but it's, it's really the story of him sort of finding his way back after sort of these feelings of, um, I guess really, feeling quite alienated from his sort of family and his experience back home. Um, He has what you, I mean, I guess today we would say he has post-traumatic stress disorder from his experiences in the war. So it, and it's really about his sort of like finding his kind of way back to himself um, or a version of himself. Um, But it's, it's, it's just so beautiful. It's, um, it's not an easy read and what I mean by that is that um, it's not a linear narrative um, it sort of jumps around and moves around and it's not like really clearly signposted when it does that so as the reader you have to work a little bit you have to you know you have to really be concentrating when you're reading but you have to do this bit of work but I really love that um, I get a lot out of that as a reader because mm. I almost feel like I'm contributing in a way to the story, mm. which yeah. is a really beautiful feeling. Um, and there's so many elements of the Native American culture, which, and it's kind of like broken up by these um, these stories, these like sort of um, stories of Native American culture. You know, they're sort of like um, the foundation stories that make their world, um, which are kind, which look like poetry sort of set on the page like poetry and they read like poetry mm. um and they're really beautiful because that story is kind of happening at the same time as Teo, who's the main character as his story is happening um it's it's a gorgeous gorgeous read it's takes took me probably about the first sort of like 40 or 50 pages to get in but once i was in i was all in and i just sort of like fell into this book and 
just loved it so much. I feel like it's one of those ones that I will come back and read because I just want to live in the language and her use of language and the way she talks about the landscape and, and the world and just stunning, 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 stunning. And also kind of as a throwback to what we were talking about with the cover of um, Maria Tamarkin's book, the copy that I have is not the original copy. It's it's a newer version, which I think is about 10 years old. Um, and it's it's a gorgeous cover. It's this beautiful blue cover. It's kind of like this kind of textured in a way and, and ceremony, the name is across the top, but even that, that's kind of like embossed on it. And mm. it's just a gorgeous cover and the pages are all rough. Yeah, I like They're that. not sort of like clean cut. And even that adds to kind of the experience of reading this book is just the kind of aesthetic value of the, the book itself. Um, yeah, so two thumbs up for that one. Absolutely beautiful. Um, and I actually am looking forward to writing an essay about it, which is uh, <laughs> unheard of in this current you know, experience for me. Um, the other thing I want to recommend is um, – a series of episodes that um, have been happening at 99% Invisible over the last sort of like couple of weeks, I think maybe. It's called Articles of Interest and it's about clothes. Mm. Um, so there's um, an episode about play, pla- played, plaid, tartan, plaid, 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 yeah, tartan, basically. Um, <clears throat> there's an episode about Hawaiian shirts. They talk about kids' clothing. Mm. and like sort of how much cooler it is well why it's so much cooler it's really interesting like the rules and regulations around kids clothing and why they do things the way they do and um you know they talk about there's an there's an issue um an episode about pockets which i haven't got to yet which i'm really into because i have a big thing about pockets it's kind of talking about how the safety yeah because kids sleepwear has to be like fire retardant yeah right so but that's kind of like an expensive thing to do yeah so and and the reality is that anything can be sleepwear so what they do is they kind of make these sort of stylistic choices with regards to design that sort of signal that this is not sleepwear it might have sequins on it or it might have patches or things like that and and that is a way of signaling this is not sleepwear, so therefore it doesn't have to be fire retardant. Yeah, it's really, really interesting when you sort mm. of delve into those ideas. But I think I'm. it interests me because I think um, that the clothes that we wear and the choices that we make yeah. are super complex and there's like all a whole lot of stuff going on around that and the history of fashion is really, really interesting. Mm. Um, so it's just... It's kind of fun to listen into those conversations and and maybe I mean I think a lot about these ideas anyway, but maybe think a little bit about uh, even the politics that are around what we wear because everything is political and mm. and fashion is no different. So yeah, articles of interest from ninety nine percent invisible. I don't think it's going to be a standalone show. I think it's just like a series that's happening on the show. But mm. yeah, definitely worth a listen. Really interesting. Really well done, of course. Um, and just, um, yeah, good yeah. fun. Oh, yes. That's really interesting. Mm. <laughs> Things you never really think about until someone points it out that's to you. That's the thing. I like, mean, you, oh, you, know, you, get, you get up in the morning and you, and you pull on a pair of jeans and a T-shirt and you don't even think about it, but there's, like, so much around that. I feel like I'm, you know, Miranda Priestley from <laughs> Devil <laughs> West Prada <laughs> talking about that blue it sweater. It was cerulean. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, great. Uh, that's what I've got. What do you got, Neve? Okay. 
So, first recommendation is called Hashtag Poetry. It's a documentary on YouTube by Ariel Bizet. Um, she's a YouTuber. I've been following her for like a couple of years. She's really great. Um, she talks about books a lot. Um, hashtag Poetry um, is specifically about Instagram poets, though she, though she interrogates the use of that term. Um, and she interviews people who like post their poetry on Instagram, academics, like publishers who's published that, like poetry, like really sort of delving into like poetry, why people view Instagram poets the way they do, mm. the cultural sort of like ramifications, like that's sort of been explored previously, but I think she really, really sort of delves deep into sort of the whys. Um, she also talks about like poetry as like a cultural phenomenon, how it's progressed throughout history and this sort of social and political ramifications of it. It's very interesting. I think it's more interesting and more well put together than perhaps that I'm making it out to be. No, it but sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really, it's really interesting. It's about like 40 minutes, so not like too and long these to are important conversations. I think well, if you're not yeah, like having these conversations on the weekend where I was at a wedding and someone I hadn't seen in about a decade was like, oh yeah, what do you I was like, oh yeah, I like reading poetry. And they're like, yeah, so who's your favourite Instagram poet? I don't really consume poetry through Instagram. I read, like, I don't read Instagram. I, like, flick through Instagram, but I don't follow any poets. And I knew that there was some stuff happening, but I wasn't aware of how much stuff is happening with Instagram Mm. poetry. Mm. And that was their kind of framework to what poetry is. And I was a bit like, no, I I can't even name one. Well, yeah, Ruby Core is obviously the really big (laughs) example, and but she's kind of crossed over into print now as well. Well, a lot of them have. Mm -hmm. Like there, like if you go into the poetry section now, there are more, and that's very much to do with the like. I suppose it's like a renaissance of poetry that's been driven by Instagram poetry, which I really enjoyed because those people have ready-made audiences. Yeah, and they talk about that because they've been. I think you still need to build oh you mean when they go into print, print. yeah, yeah. they have built their their audience on instagram this is like kind of a uh you know thinking from a putting my business yeah. publisher hat on a hat i don't actually own but um you know those instagram accounts have built followers and then when they publish a book those people are that's a ready-made audience yeah what I found um, interesting was that we were having an in-depth conversation about poetry at a wedding and this person hasn't read, hasn't had exposure to poetry at all and hasn't studied the arts or anything like that. And it was fantastic. Mm. Like it's, I think it cops a lot of flack, Instagram poetry, from other s- sections of the poetry community. And I've heard that quite a lot at panels and things yeah. like that. It's yeah. so many disparaging mm-hmm. comments. But it gave me a lot of joy that we could come together and discuss something which... I knew little about but they could tell me and then I could tell them about poets that I read in print yeah. and it was I think it's a great think it's time well, oh definitely time. I think it's you you really can't when you're talking about that you can't separate it from class you can't mm-hmm. separate from race and yes. you can't separate from gender like absolutely very much like the Instagram poetry movement is driven by young women so actually age as well like you and I feel like that is 
a key component to why mm-hmm. it's viewed the way that it is. I mean, obviously, like any for like any like sort of new movement, there are poets who are probably a little bit better or like that I like more than others. But, but you can uh, say that about published work as well. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And it's a really broad, like it's a broad spectrum. Like yeah, exactly. Like any other work. Um, yeah, with the sort of ready-made audience thing, they do touch the um, documentary touches on that mm. and how like perhaps that sort of disparaged of like, oh, it's just commercial. But the thing is, I think you're only we've a talked... real poet if you only sell five books. Like... Yeah, exactly. I think we've talked <laughs> you know? about that before. Is sort of like that. I find that viewpoint of like it's only real art if you suffer, or it's only real art if like you know if you're only thinking about yourself. No, I really don't subscribe to that. I really don't. I feel like some of the hate that gets directed at Rupi Kaur is because she sold like a bazillion books and she gets to wear like Oscar de la Renta gowns when she goes to readings, you know, like oh, because she has had that incredible success, which is not what you would normally associate with poetry. Yeah, and well, the thing is, and what's mentioned in the documentary, like, I think it was Byron was criticised in his day because, like, his poetry was too mainstream. And I'm sort of like, <laughs> look, maybe it is mainstream, but the thing is, like, there's mainstream books. Well, like, I mean, Shakespeare was writing for a working class audience. Exactly. So why do we? Uh, why are we so precious about poetry? Mm, and it really interrogates it. It's really. I am gonna watch the hell out of that. Oh yeah, go for it. it. Yeah. Just because <laughs> when I search this on YouTube, I know there'll be a link in the show notes, but it's like an actual hash symbol, hash poetry, one word. Or is it the word yeah. hashtag? No, actual hash. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. I'm on board. I can find it now. Great. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, so my second recommendation is kind of like a Halloween one because I, I love Halloween. Um, it's called Meeting the Huntress by Talia Hibbert. I really love Talia Hibbert. She um, is... Have you uh, recommended her before? You probably would have seen me talk about her on Twitter. Mm, okay. Most likely. Just sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, she self-publishes, and I really like basically all of her books. I've read all of her books, and I love them. Um, this one in particular is... Like it's her like first dip into paranormal romance, which was really because she's on, basically only written like contemporary work, and she's sort of like I kind of want to write a paranormal romance, and everybody's like just do it, just like, yeah I'm gonna do it. What so, a genre! Um, so this is a novella, um, and about like a werewolf and like so a girl, oh, sorry, not a girl, a woman who was um, raised in a family that hunts werewolves. So like you've got Conflict. that you've got that like Romeo and Juliet <laughs> sort of tension to begin with. It's it's just great. I love her. Right, she's so sharp. Like like I'm constantly laughing. There's like this sequence that's like abs- almost absurd in its humor. That's such like a paranormal sort of like you can only really get in fantasy settings where it's sort yeah. of like you can o- like this can only yeah told in that particular forum it's just i really love i love the book it's very quick if you want something you know spooky for your october maybe just get onto it perfect um and then my final recommendation is the queerest diction podcast um this is created by the same people who create drunk lesbians watch on youtube which is another series that i like 
completely love and I watch all the time when I'm feeling like down um and what a great name <laughs> yeah literally it's um yeah so it's literally and occasionally it's shifted um to drunk queer women watch but it's basically just like drunk queer women and occasion in one episode one drunk queer um non-binary individual uh watching sort of queer films and commentating and it's just great it's a lot of fun <laughs> um but back to the actual podcast i'm recommending in particular pod the episode 16 the sort of format of the podcast is they talk a bit like take questions at the beginning but then they start to they take a um movie and then write fan fiction about them Ooh. And this one was um, A Simple Truth, which when I watched the trailer, um, I had some real gay vibes to it. And apparently I was correct. This one, A Simple Truth, is stars Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. Um, it's a new film, yeah? Yeah, a new film. And it's kind of like a bit noir and like... Yeah, a bit, yeah. Yeah, a bit noir. A bit, um, <coughs> I really loved the fan fiction. It was just great. I just, I loved it. But I particularly love this episode because it was came out about the same time as like um the bisexuality awareness day and so a lot of the conversation was was i think it was between two like sort of bisexual women and then one lesbian from memory and sort of about like being a bisexual woman and like conversations around that which was really great and there were like points where i was like nodding along like yes i've like experienced that myself and it was just great so, can I ask a question? Do mm-hmm. they read the fan fiction? The fan fiction? They <laughs> so they write it. Do they read it on the podcast? Yes. Okay. I'm all and it in. is great. I love fan fiction. Oh, me too. I look. I'm generally not a like a person who will go in for like for this particular one. It's like about the actors, which generally I'm a bit like. <laughs> the thing is, I think for this, it's like such in good humor, and there's sort of like you know, this yeah. is just, I'm sort of like whatever plus when do you ever get to hear like mainstream queering of narratives generally as well so i thought that was yeah it was nice sounds great yeah there's the lyrics <laughs> <laughs> another excellent stack of recommendations one day we'll publish a book with just all our recommendations which will be difficult because i don't know show how we'll link to like youtube episodes and stuff but it's okay we'll figure it out <laughs> ebook yes yeah, good idea yeah true <laughs> all right that's how it's done Yay. Thank you for listening to Literary Cannonball. We hope you'll tune in again next month and we'll be talking about Alison Whitaker, Alison Whitaker's black work, mm-hmm. which I'm super pumped about because yeah. the description is amazing and the cover is next level. Metaphique. Yes. <laughs> Can't wait for that one. Um, in the meantime, if you want to continue the conversation or if you just want to be digital friends, you can follow us on Twitter at LitCannonball, on Instagram at LiteraCannonball, or find us on Facebook. And if you have something to tell us that's a little more than 280 characters, send us an email. We'd love to get all the emails. Our inbox is so lonely. <laughs> <laughs> at LiteraCannonball at gmail.com. That actually reminds me to check the inbox. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, but whilst I'm on the internet, I will definitely swing by literarycannibal.com and you should come along too. It's our website where you'll find a full wrap of the show notes and a list of, and more importantly, links to 
all our various recommendations. So mm-hmm. you don't have to ask Neve in exquisite detail. Is it a symbol hashtag or is it a hashtag? It'll all be there and it'll be so seamless. And that is literarycannibal.com. Perfect. That's us done. Lunchtime. Yeah. Bye. Yes. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Lucky I always book like four hours because we <laughs> always need four hours. <laughs> It's like we need this hour, hour and a half of conversation before we start. Oh, recording. yeah. We Did need you, your chair go back then. Yeah. It's like I remember that it does that, but I'm always like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> like an inch further than I expected to go. Yeah. I was like, it's like a sculpture. You need to like carve away the negative space. We to... found the marble. Yeah. Here we are. Marble found left side. <laughs> That's a great idea. Thanks. <laughs>